You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, your host, and with me today are Will Doran, Lauren Horsch, Andy Spey, and Colin Campbell. Uh, this week we had the political earthquake in Pennsylvania's 18th district uh, and tremors felt here in North Carolina. There was a new lawsuit in the never-ending battle over the elections and ethics board in North Carolina, and we may uh, just have a uh, board now. There's uh, competing uh, press conferences related to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline Fund, and lawmakers and their staff are going to have to undergo harassment training. Um, but let's start with uh, the Pennsylvania race and how that was, uh, what the reaction was here. Andy, uh, a memo that went out from the House caucus, House Republican caucus's political director to all House Republicans uh, leaked out to a conservative blog and uh, had some things to say about what that race means for North Carolina. So uh, what did that say? Uh, right. So first, a shout out to one of our listeners who uh, emailed me earlier this week and said that I need to say um less and uh less. I am going to try to do better on that. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your email. Um, Good advice because, for all of us. Yes, Sorry. Yes. Sorry about that. Uh, with that said, Connor Lamb won Pennsylvania 18. The next morning, the political director of the North Carolina House Republicans sent out a memo. And in it, he pointed out districts that went for Trump plus 20 by 20 percentage points or less that would be in most election years considered safe this year not so much he said if we if the same thing that happens in pennsylvania happens here we would lose these districts and it was a list of about i think 22 or 23 mostly what what many would consider to be safe republican districts but now people are rethinking that so Obviously, uh, this got leaked to uh, Daily Haymaker, which is a, a blog. I'm not sure who runs it. But the Democrats then picked it up from there, circulated it in their own newsletter, said, look, the, De the Republicans are terrified. Dallas Woodhouse came out and told our dear friend Colin at The Insider, he's not so much, he's not that terrified. Uh, North Carolina is very different from Pennsylvania in many ways. Uh, Connor Lamb, uh, ran on union rights up in Pennsylvania, which where they have union rights, we're a right to work, work state, so we don't have, uh, the unions don't have much power here. So there are some differences, but Jordan, as you mentioned, it was a political earthquake and people seem to be taking notice and might even be scared, even if they won't admit it. Well, what they said, right, if I, if I remember correctly, was that, you know, if all of these districts that, you know, fall under the threshold of this Pennsylvania one do flip to Democrats here, uh, you know, not only would Republicans lose the supermajority, they might lose the majority. That's right. That's which, right. The memo said, which obviously I don't think the Democrats had ever floated that as a possibility here in the General Assembly. Obviously, the, the race in Pennsylvania was for a, an open congressional seat. We're talking now about the General Assembly, the, the State House, State Senate, and they hadn't talked about that. They, the best they hoped for was uh, breaking the supermajority so that they could uphold some of the governor's vetoes when, uh, so, so the Republican, not the currently Republican-controlled House and Senate uh, wouldn't obviously override them. But to think 
it it seems crazy to think that they could now gain a majority, but people are talking about it. And you talked to a lot of smart people about how likely that really is. Um, what what are you hearing uh, about whether Democrats should now expect to take all these seats that uh, were included in this memo? Right. We talked to several smart people, An- Andy Taylor at NC State, Michael Bitzer out at Catawba College, um, a man named Kyle who runs Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is sort of a wind vane for how politics are going. Uh, it's a website, Crystal Ball, it sort of handicaps uh, races across the country, as well as several other people, uh, UNC, Charlotte, Professor. And they, they pointed out that uh, Connor Lamb was not like the modern day Democrat. He was not vocally pro-choice. He was not for banning assault weapons. He, I think, campaigned with an AR-15 in hand at one point. So he was more middle of the road. They said that race, he's a very ideal candidate for that race, and he won, albeit still barely. So they cautioned uh, Democrats not to get too optimistic because you're not going to have the ideal candidate in every race. You know, I don't know if someone like you know, uh, uh, someone like Elizabeth Warren is not going to win in like Kinston, North Carolina. <laughs> I don't think anybody expects that. But they said that you know Democrats can get their hopes up, but don't expect you know this flood of unexpected success unless you have your eyes dotted and your T's crossed and you have viable candidates who can get out there and raise money and uh, deliver a message that resonates. Maybe that's not all of the Democratic talking points, you know, like on the social issues. But um, if you can do that, then maybe you can beat expectations. It is a sign of where we are now, though, that uh, a lot of these experts said, well, you can't necessarily expect to take all these seats, but uh, there is a decent chance uh, that Democrats could actually take over the legislature this year. I mean, that's to have that as something that people are saying is a, is possible even um, or a reasonable expectation is, is kind of incredible a sign of where we are right now. Um, so uh, and I wanted to add so what they what they thought about the memo, because a lot of people suggested the memo was alarmist. Obviously, it was an internal memo. It wasn't supposed to be uh, leaked to the public, but it was. Um, and to be clear, it didn't say we're going to lose all these seats. No. It just said if the Pennsylvania results were replicated here, right. that this is what would happen. Right. And I don't, I don't, I didn't, after reading it, consider it an alarmist email. If I were Matt Bales with uh, the House Republicans, I think I would have said things the exact same way. If what happened there happens here, then this is a result we might be able to expect, unless we get organized and get this money. Uh, Jonathan Kapler, who's the executive director of the Free Enterprise Foundation, said that uh, the memo strikes him as, quote, an effort to try to prepare folks so they're not caught flat-footed and to try to prevent the GOP from losing some seats uh, that they really shouldn't. So, and I think that's a fair assessment is, you know, it's sort of a reminder like, hey, if we're not, you know, if we don't back up uh, Representative Clampett, who's in a, you know, a Republican district, but could be seen as vulnerable if we don't, you know, put some resources behind him, then yeah, if we ignore him, he could lose. Um, so I, I, from a, I'm sure from a political operative standpoint, they're doing the right things. Yeah. And when I talked to Dallas Woodhouse uh, about the memo, he uh, 
one wasn't 100% able to authenticate it, but he did say he sort of stands behind Matt Bales, that his job really is as a, a motivator uh, to, to try to get people um, active in their campaigns. And the way the memo was written, it clearly went to the House members, listing off the ones that needed to be worried about uh, the potential of a loss. And the idea there was, the message there was clearly, get out there, raise money, have an active campaign, because you need to. And um, clearly the party supports that line, even if the, the memo got out beyond the people it was intended to be received by. Okay. Well, uh, there's something else that uh, legislators uh, got emailed about this uh, week, and that is, Lauren, that they're all going to have to take sexual harassment, or I guess I should just say harassment um, training. Uh, and some of these, uh, some of this already happens in the legislature when people first get there, but um, as of now, it hasn't been uh, mandatory annual training. Um, so what is what is it, what exactly is going to happen now? Well, what happened is this week, uh, Paul Coble, the legislative services officer, who's kind of like the overseer of everything in the General Assembly, sent an email to staff members and elected officials in the General Assembly saying that there would be mandatory uh, uh, anti uh, workplace harassment training, but it's only mandatory for staff members. So those are people who are working within the legislature, the legislative assistants, um, nonpartisan staff. The lawmakers, on the other hand, will be given the opportunity to watch a 90-minute video provided by uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures, which is just a big organization for all state legislatures. Um, and they, will t they can take that and then provide a certificate of completion to General Assembly HR. Um, and this is a this is a good move because, you know, like Jordan said, it was kind of unclear. Lawmakers really only took some sort of harassment training when they were first elected. And some people have been there, you know, multiple terms. So they might not get that, you know, even after they're reelected. Um, and it was unclear, you know, how many staff members were getting regular training. And you, of course, get this workplace harassment policy when you come in as a new staff member. But how many people actually read that? You know, you sign off on some paperwork saying you have read it, but have you actually read it? So it's a it's a good step forward for a lot of those staff members who weren't quite sure, you know, what the rules are. Um, and it provides a layer of protection for some of those staff members to understand, you know, what those rules are and how to protect themselves well on duty. And this is, you know, a step that lawmakers had wanted COBOL to take. I know Representative Darren Jackson, the House uh, Democratic leader, had asked for some sort of training. Uh, so we did see that, and Coble was very open about the fact that he'd been looking at it already. He'd been trying to take a proactive step to get that training. Um, but that's, you know, not only what, you know, uh, Representative Jackson wanted. He also wanted an independent investigatory system, which Coble has not commented on whether or not that's something he's looking into or not. So it's it's a step forward for some of those lawmakers who wanted something different to help protect staff members. So that's does it seem like this was sped up because of the allegations against Dwayne Hall, who's the uh, House Democrat who's accused of sexual misconduct, or is this basically something that was headed down the road anyway after all the other um, Me Too uh, movement? Um? I don't think it was sped up at all because when I had asked questions about this back in November and December, Coble told me that he was working on it and that he would hopefully have something to roll out in early 2018. So we are still in what, the first quarter of 2018? So, you know, he, he was well on his way to getting it then, and this was just kind of the time when it would come out. And so in April, those staff members will have the chance to take that training that they've been waiting for. 
Uh, well, you guys at the Insider uh, surveyed all House members on uh, what they think about uh, whether Dwayne Hall should step down, as some have already vocally said. Um, Colin, how how uh, how much of a response did you get to this survey? Yeah, this was something we sent out earlier this week, and we've heard uh, calls from some pretty prominent Democrats over the past few weeks, including Governor Roy Cooper, uh, Darren Jackson, the House Democratic leader, and the House or the uh, NC Democratic Party chair Wayne Goodwin, all calling for Hall to resign, uh, which sort of gives you the impression that. Uh, Democrats are a united front on this issue. Um, and when we sent out the survey, that really wasn't the case. Uh, we decided we were going to ask every member of the House, both uh, Republicans and Democrats, who hadn't already made a public statement about Hall, uh, do they think Hall should resign? Do they think there should be an ethics uh, committee investigation? And do they think there's a need for uh, additional or improved uh, sexual harassment policies at the legislature? And uh, we didn't really get that many responses out of the 120 uh, House members. Um, 24 House Democrats out of the, uh, I guess there's about uh, 35 of them uh, total, uh, did not uh, make a public statement and did not respond to our survey. Um, and of the ones that did respond, um, the, for the vast majority, with one or two exceptions, uh, the folks who hadn't previously made a statement calling for Hall to resign uh, stopped short of actually saying that they think Hall should resign. They said they think there should be an investigation first. They think Hall should resign only if the allegations are true, and it, they indicated they're not fully convinced that that's necessarily the case. Um, and others said they, they feel like um, there needs to be more of a due process uh, here and that it shouldn't be decided in sort of the court of uh, public opinion. Uh, then on the Republican side, um, we had very, very few responses. I think about a total of uh, maybe five or six Republicans, um, while 70 House, other House Republicans, including most of the folks in leadership, including House Speaker Tim Moore, uh, did not respond at all. Um, and the Republicans that did respond, um, a lot of them said they weren't really paying close attention to the allegations. Uh, some, One of them, uh, Representative Bob Mueller, who's not to be confused with the guy investigating the Russia thing, uh, he says the investigation should be open to assess the allegations. Um, and the Republicans we talked to did uh, say they think there needs to be some uh, a review of sexual harassment policies around the legislature, but these weren't the uh, uh, the major leading Republicans uh, weighing in on this. So it's it's interesting to see. Uh, I, I don't know if there's sort of fear about getting into this issue and people just don't want to talk about it, um, or whether the Republicans are viewing this as a Democratic Party problem because the person who's the only person who's been accused at this point is a Democrat. Um, but ultimately not a whole lot of uh, strong responses when we put this survey out there. It was interesting because most of the vocal people have been people who have been calling on him to resign, and some people have been silent. But um, I was interested by what a couple of the people, who the legislators who used to be judges, had to say. Yeah, so two of the people who did respond on the Democratic side were uh, Marsha Moray, uh, who is, was a judge in Durham, and Joe John, who was a judge in, in Wake County and in a couple of other positions over his career. Uh, and they were very strong on sort of the, the due process side. The quote from uh, Morey was, I served as a judge for 18 years. People are presumed innocent and should have the right to due process and the ability to confront their accusers. This should not be decided in a court of surveys or public opinion. Uh, and then from Representative Joe John, um, he uh, basically called out the Republicans because uh, the Democrats have been asking Speaker Moore, in, in his words, to establish official General Assembly procedures to in, for investigating and adjudicating sexual harassment claims. To date, no measures have been forthcoming. As a former judge, I know the critical necessity for a well-defined legal process to air grievances, to protect the rights of individuals, and to bring matters to a resolution. Um, so very clear comments from the judges that they feel like um, there's not 
anything close to a strong judicial process here uh, for the accusers to bring forward their claims and for Hall to uh, defend himself and, and have uh, some decisions be made. This was also the week that one of Hall's Democratic primary challengers dropped out, although her name will still be on the ballot. Uh, Heather Mature was one of two uh, Democrats who had challenged Hall for the, the nomination, and uh, she said she won't run anymore. Um, so there's one Democratic woman who's still running. Yeah, Allison Dahl, I believe. It'll be interesting to see how the uh, Democratic Party handles that primary. Normally, Democrat leader, Democratic leaders don't necessarily jump into primaries. But when I asked uh, Darren Jackson, the House Democratic leader, about it a couple of weeks ago, uh, he said, no, he's, he's not personally going to get active in that race. But he encourages the voters of that district to uh, read about the allegations and make the decision for themselves. So it's clear that uh, you're, you're definitely not going to see prominent Democrats out there campaigning for Hall uh, in this primary and some perhaps very uh, casually pointing out that the allegations that are against him and perhaps they should consider the other person. Will, uh, Governor Cooper came out uh, in favor of a number of gun law proposals this week. Um, one of the notable ones was that he now wants um, more background checks in North Carolina. And you had written that uh, background checks are actually uh, a little s more strict here than in some other states, but he wants to um, go beyond what what we have now. So uh, take us through that. What does he What does he want to do? Exactly, you're right. We are more strict than in some other states, but we haven't closed all of the loopholes uh, that people can kind of avoid going through background checks on. And he wants to do a little bit more on that. Um, uh, for instance, here, obviously, you have to uh, go through a background check, get a permit to buy a pistol. You have to be 21 to get a pistol. Um, but you don't have to do, and you also have to get a background check for if you're buying a pistol through a private sale, not through a licensed dealer, but like from your coworker or your father-in-law or some guy at a gun show or something like that. Um, uh, we're one of the few states that requires background checks for those private sales. Um, uh, Cooper wants to also extend that to assault weapons, uh, which uh, are basically semi-automatic rifles, uh, typically like most AR-looking guns, uh, you know, things with uh, folding stocks, pistol grips. Um, there, there's a certain list of accessories, basically, that make something turn from, like, a hunting rifle to an assault rifle. Um, and it would seem kind of backwards or strange that you would have to go through more checks for a pistol than for one of these kind of weapons. Uh, but I assume that grows out of not wanting checks as many checks for your, your typical rifle, hunting rifle, or something like that. I don't right. Know. Well, and obviously, you know, pistols are much more concealable, are you right. know, easier to use in crimes. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's why there have been stricter background checks on those in the past than on uh, long guns. Uh, but he wants to expand the background checks for those. He also wants to raise the age for buying assault weapons to 21. And he also wants to uh, create a new type of order that can uh, allow the government to force people to turn over their weapons if they are deemed to be kind of like at a danger to themselves or others. Um, you know, there's been, you know, some studies that say having a gun in the house makes people much more likely to commit suicide. So this, you know, an order like that would be able to let uh, people's concerned family members uh, convince a court to uh, take guns away from a relative that they think might be considering suicide. Um, or in the case of, you know, someone who might be a school shooter. Uh, you know, like we saw in Florida, there had been a lot of concerns raised about uh, the kid who eventually went in and shot up the Parkland uh, High School there. And, you know, maybe if there were, you know, stricter 
stricter rules on the books for some of the school officials who had raised concerns about him beforehand to get his guns taken away, then that might have been avoided. Um, and that's actually an idea that has been supported by some pretty prominent conservatives on the national level. You know, David French, who's a well-known conservative author, has supported those uh, restraining orders. And we already have a similar thing here in North Carolina for domestic violence. Um, if you are, uh, if you get a restraining order for domestic and violence that involves you making threats with guns or using guns to commit domestic violence, you can uh, be forced to give up your guns. Uh, but obviously, that only deals with domestic violence. That doesn't uh, deal with the kind of broader, more vague issues of just being a threat to yourself or others. Um, so that's kind of a, an overview of some of the things that Cooper wants to do. I talked to uh, House Democratic leader Darren Jackson uh, the other day about this. He said that actually a lot of these things are proposals that Democrats have brought up in the past six or seven years in the legislature, and none of them, he said, passed. A lot of them weren't even allowed to go up for a vote. Those that did go up for a vote were voted down. Um, but who knows, you know, with this uh, with this kind of new atmosphere that we've got in the country, you know, it seems that, you know, it's possible some people are a little bit more open to uh, to considering stricter gun control. Uh, you saw, obviously, the, the Republican-controlled legislature in Florida pass some of these sim same measures that Cooper's talking about, um, obviously now facing a lawsuit, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but, yeah, um, Darren Jackson also said that, uh, you know, even if the legislature isn't able to pass all or any of these things Cooper wants, he still thinks there's other things that we can do, specifically on school safety. Uh, he said he would like to see more counselors to kind of, you know, stop troubled teenagers from turning into school shooters in the first place. Um, then, you know, obviously there are physical safety things that the legislature might be able to do, uh, bulletproof glass, metal detectors, things like that. Lauren, the Republicans are talking about some of these school safety measures, um, although not really talking too much about uh, gun control ideas, I take it. Not yet. Uh, there was a, a meeting yesterday of the Joint Legislative Oversight Committee on Emergency Management um, where they brought in uh, two people to kind of talk about training when it comes to firearms. So we had an official from the state to discuss, you know, how much training goes into being a law enforcement officer. And right now, law enforcement officers are the only people who are legally allowed to carry a gun on school property. And they go through, you know, 632 hours of training before they can even become a police officer. Um, and so even then they have to do continuing training. But they also brought in um, a guy who does private training for certain things. I know he does some for... Uh, EMS, uh, emergency medical personnel, that sort of thing. Um, and he said if we were to train teachers, and this is not a requirement and this is not something that the legislature is considering at this moment, they're talking about it, they're gathering more information, but if they were to decide that they would allow teachers to carry a concealed gun on any school campus, if that was their choice, they would have to go through a huge mindset training because we've already seen in polls that two-thirds of teachers don't want to be armed. So it would not only have to be a training on how to properly use a gun, but it would also have to be a training on how to properly use a weapon and why it's okay to carry a weapon in certain situations. And, the, and this guy, I forget his name, um, said he could create a course specifically for teachers. It would probably be an 80-plus hour cor uh, course. And from there, you know, we don't know how much that would cost or how many teachers would be involved. Um, it's a lot of continuing education credits. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's – they're still talking about it, and they didn't come to any conclusions. I mean, we might see more 
coming out of the Emergency Management Oversight Committee in the next couple of months. Um, but one of the chairman of that uh, committee, Ron Rabin, who's um, a Republican from Harnett County. County. Thank you. Wanted to say the other Rabin. But um, he, he, he basically gave his committee members a white paper, a 16-page memo explaining his thoughts and ideas on everything. Is he trying to out Skip Stam, Skip Stam, who is known for his white papers? I (laughs) never got the honor of reading a Skip Stam white paper, so I don't know. But this is, you know, it's pretty comprehensive. He went through everything this committee had talked about over five months, and I think one of the main thing, one of the main takeaways in this, you know, national conversation we're having about gun safety and in schools is he really wants to you know, make sure people understand that you need, if you see something, you need to say something. And I, I forget the correct wording, but, you know, in the memo he talks about how because we're in such this such a politically correct world right now, people don't want to be the first person to say, oh, that person is standing over there lurking. What is he or she up to that could be dangerous? Like they don't want to be the one to tattle or tail or tattletale on someone or kind of judge someone for what they're doing but he really wants to make sure that people not only students understand that if there's something suspicious happening you need to say something because that could prevent the next school shooting um he also said there's no silver bullet to helping figure out how to fix these problems you you, attacking a man-made problem you know there's there's no right answer so he's still trying to figure it out himself, and his committee will get involved with that too. But it was it was interesting to kind of just see and read what one lawmaker is thinking about all sorts of safety issues across the state. All right. Uh, will, you went to a couple uh, press conferences this week related to the, pipe, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, and we've talked about this, sh- this issue a lot before, but um, let's just quick run through what the latest developments are. So um, Republicans kind of upped the ante this week, and they – uh, accused uh, Roy Cooper of some kind of serious allegations. Um, so what are, what are they saying? Yeah, they are uh, Dallas Woodhouse and Robin Hayes, who are the two leaders of the North Carolina Republican Party, are uh, suggesting, they're not directly accusing, but they're suggesting that Cooper may have uh, violated a federal anti-corruption, anti-extortion law uh, when he worked with uh, the companies behind the Atlantic Coast Pipeline to create this $50 million, $58 million fund uh, that, you know, as all of our listeners know, was originally supposed to go to kind of environmental mitigation stuff, economic development stuff that the legislature then took away from Cooper's office and sent to schools instead. Um, and that kind of precipitated this whole political battle over that money. Um, but uh, now that the money is reallocated, uh, basically, the Republicans are focusing on the process and how this fund came to be. And they are saying that uh, the they sent a letter to Jeff Sessions, the U.S. Attorney General, asking the Department of Justice to start an investigation into Cooper over uh, these extortion charges. Um, it's actually the same law uh, that was used in part to send uh, former Illinois governor, also Democrat, Rod Blagojevich, to prison. Um, although I should note his convictions on those charges were actually later overturned by an appeals court. Uh, I went into the details of my article, so people who are interested in that can go and read it. Uh, I'll be brief here. Um, but yeah, so you kind of had the uh, the Republican Party accusing Cooper of uh, potentially committing some federal crimes. And then uh, Darren Jackson, the uh, House Democratic leader, held a press conference uh, basically bashing the Republicans for that. He said, you know, how, how do they expect 
any sort of degree of cooperation with the governor's office if they're going to go out and do this sort of thing. Uh, I think that was one of the reasons why Cooper defended putting the, taking this money to the governor's office in the first place. Uh, he said that he didn't really trust the, the Republicans in the legislature to uh, do the right thing with the money, and so he, he thought that he could do better with it than they could. Um, and so, you know, you really kind of had this just toxic political atmosphere with the two sides are just very angry and mistrustful at each other. Um, Cooper, I assume, uh, denies that uh, any of this is, is correct. What, what, did, what did the governor's office say about it? Yeah, uh, they have basically stuck with their guns the whole time saying everything about this was proper and fine and frankly needed. Uh, Eastern North Carolina, where this money would have gone along the path of the pipeline, needs more economic development. You know, I think everyone knows that, you know, Rocky Mountain is one of the fastest shrinking cities in the state and, you know, obviously jobs are hard to come by out out east of I-95 um, and so they are they've been very critical of the uh, the Republicans in the legislature for taking the money away um, although obviously they can't be too critical because Democrats have also made it a huge point of theirs for the last decade that uh, we need to fund schools more um, and that you know, better education is one of the best things that we can do for economic development, which is something a lot of Republicans have pointed out, uh, you know, kind of calling Cooper a hypocrite, uh, you know, saying on one hand, he says we need to fund schools, but then when we try and fund schools, he says, no, we should be doing other stuff with the money. So uh, it's just uh, a whole huge fight. I am sure this is not the last we've heard of it. Um, uh, but as of now, we don't know if, you know, the feds are actually looking into any of this and uh, you know, could just be that it's all a political stunt, or it could be that there's really something here. Uh, we'll have to wait for uh, the experts and the prosecutors to weigh in. Uh, Colin, one last thing before we uh, take a break and come back with headliner of the week, which is we should bring people up to speed on the whole election board saga. So um, as people uh, know, most people who listen to the show probably know, Republicans have tried a couple times to uh, change the structure of the elections and ethics board in North Carolina, and they made a third attempt recently to do this after their first two uh, got hung up in court or overturned, and um, now Cooper has sued to try to overturn the third iteration of this, um, and um, we may have a new board pretty soon because uh, Cooper has said that he's going to go ahead and, and appoint one after uh, the board's been vacant for many months. Yeah, so we could have a board actually uh, recording this Friday morning. By the end of the day, Friday, uh, there may be a story out about uh, who the State Elections Board and Ethics Commission, uh, which is all, all be one board, uh, is going to be. So what happened here was uh, we started out the week uh, with more legal wrangling uh, over this. Uh, the NC Supreme Court had ruled that the, the last uh, iteration of the Elections Ethics Board, which was going to be an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, um, was unconstitutional uh, because it infringed on the governor's powers. A lower court interpreted that to mean uh, the appointment provision is struck down. So the two agencies can still be merged, uh, but the way the, uh, the Republicans of the legislature wanted to structure the board was not going to work. Uh, Cooper's administration went back to the Supreme Court this week to say, hey, we don't think you really meant this. Didn't you mean that the entire law should be struck down and we should go back to having separate ethics and elections uh, agencies? And the Supreme Court said, no, Governor Cooper, the lower court was right. Uh, that's not what we wanted at all. We just wanted to change the appointment provision. Um, and so as of, I think, early uh, this morning, uh, the class size 
uh, pipeline money, uh, elections board mega bill has become law without the governor's uh, signature, and that means that the uh, provision in law right now to appoint the members of the elections and ethics board is to have uh, four Democrats, four Republicans, and then out of those uh, folks, they will pick a ninth member who is not affiliated with either party, or they'll uh, give, I think, two names to the governor to pick a ninth member, and that person can't be either a Democrat or a Republican. So there's sort of a tie-breaking mechanism in there, and you don't necessarily get as much potential for a partisan deadlock. Uh, Cooper is still suing over that provision. Uh, he initially started the week trying to get an injunction to stop that part of the law from going into effect, uh, which would have meant we probably wouldn't have an elections board at all for months more, which is starting to cause some problems. Well, it's been causing problems for months uh, since the board's been vacant since June. Some of the county boards can't take action on things like setting early voting schedules, resolving election protests about who lives where, whether someone's a legitimate candidate or not. Uh, and so Cooper's administration recognized that, and they said, we're going to continue our lawsuit uh, to try to change the provision in terms of how the board is structured. We'd still like to see that changed. But in the interest of having an elections board, we're going to drop our request to have that put on hold for now pending the lawsuit and we're going to appoint people. So now he's got a list of, I think, uh, six people from the NC Republican Party, six people from the NC Democratic Party. He's going to pick four from each list. Uh, some interesting names that he's uh, got as potential picks are on the Republican side, uh, the former Civitas Institute leader Francis DeLuca, uh, along with a fairly controversial Watauga County uh, Elections Board uh, member by the name of Four Eggers. Uh, no uh, relation, I think, to Dave Eggers, the uh, author. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, longtime uh, former elections board director, Gary Bartlett's on the Democrats list, um, along with uh, Josh Malcolm, who served as a Democratic member on the elections board uh, before it was dissolved. So we should find out soon who the elections board is, and then they can meet and start to clear the backlog of work that they haven't been able to do because it's just been a staff offer operating with no bosses since June. All right. We will take a break and come right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Every two minutes, an American is sexually assaulted. Be the someone who gives their time. Be the someone who lends an ear. Be the someone who takes a step. This is Christina Ricci with Rain, asking you to join the fight against sexual violence and volunteer in your community. Log on to rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G to learn how you can be the someone. This message brought to you by the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network and this station. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? And we're back, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we pick the most important or influential person in this week's news. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner? Well, I was going to just go with guns. It seems to be basically all that anyone's talking about, uh, nationally, locally, all sorts of proposals from both sides of the aisle on kind of how to deal with the gun issue or how to not deal with the gun issue and instead focus on, you know, other things like school safety and mental health that are, you know, seen as kind of more underlying issues. Um, I don't think it's going to stop. Uh, we've got another committee hearing coming up next week in the legislature where they're going to talk more about school safety stuff uh, on Wednesday morning, I believe. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, you know, come May, I imagine that it'll be a, a big topic in the, uh, in the legislature. All right, guns for headliner of the week. Big topic lately. Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? 
I'm gonna pick the North Carolina State Board of Elections and Ethics Enforcement because we'll finally have one. I mean, you just heard Colin talk all about it, but I think it's kind of, it's a good conclusion. We'll finally have a board and we might have to stop going to the courts to decide everything. So I'm throwing the state board in there. Stop going to the courts to decide everything. Are you sure? I don't know. I jinxed it. Yeah. Darn it. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, some of these uh, local candidates whose residency gets challenged or other have other uh, disputes will be able to uh, have somebody to uh, decide these things. So uh, the North Carolina State Board of Elections and Ethics Enforcement in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Andy, who's your headliner? I'm going to go with students. Uh, high school students, middle school students mostly, uh, who walked out earlier this week in the same vein of Will's headliner of the week, but um, to protest gun violence. And uh, I want to specifically single out Broughton High School, which postponed its walkout because someone threatened the school, Uh, supposedly. Uh, Early in the day, there was what the school system considered to be a credible uh, threat against the school uh, before the students walked out. So they postponed their protest. The principal later came out with a statement saying what they now know was there's never a threat to the school, just a false rumor of a threat and a post on social media that caused unnecessary fear. But at the time, uh, it received a lot of attention because obviously there was this nationwide um, walkout protest that got lots of attention. I, I I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime where students were so well organized. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, political staffers and political organizations are taking note too. So students. Students uh, in the hat for headliner of the week uh, and a lot of interest in this this week when uh, we even had one uh, sort of viral video in which a student was the only member of his class, the only person at his school to walk yeah, out. There's a kid in Wilson, I think, who like, yeah. took a video of himself being like, well, I'm doing a walkout. I think we, the only yeah, one it was, here. It was yep. Goldsboro. Yeah. yeah. I think it was Wilson, but Wilson. one of those towns over there. Yeah. was Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, students for headliner of the week. And Colin, who's your headliner? I am going with uh, shellfish this week. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you why shellfish are in the political news. Uh, the legislature, in its great wisdom, held a committee meeting uh, down at the Pine Knoll Shores Aquarium uh, this week. And because the insider feels pretty strongly that we cover a lot of the committee meetings, and because I recognize that uh, there's not often a chance to have a work-related trip to the beach, went down there to attend the meeting. And they heard a very uh, detailed presentation about uh, state government's efforts in uh, helping people farm oysters in uh, coastal waters uh, around the Pamlico Sound just off the coast. Apparently, and this is something I was unaware of, uh, if you are interested in uh, cultivating oysters, you can lease a chunk of, uh, I guess, ocean or sea bottom uh, from the state of North Carolina to uh, have oyster aquaculture, uh, and they'll help you put material down to uh, attract the oysters and get the whole uh, facility seated. Uh, But apparently, uh, this has become an increasingly successful program for North Carolina. Uh, Within the last year or so, uh, they've had the uh, most uh, lease requests and uh, lease agreements made uh, in the program's history. Um, The people running it are saying we're uh, perhaps soon uh, catching up to our neighbors in Virginia who have a very successful uh, oyster uh, harvest program. Watch out, Virginia. Yeah, watch out, Virginia. We're coming to get your oysters, and we're going to have better oysters because we have more water, and apparently this program is really popular. Uh, But apparently they're having growing pain 
campaigns from things like waterfront property owners who don't like to see a bunch of boats out doing oyster things in front of their uh, waterfront homes. Um, and there's also some concerns about cleaning up uh, abandoned operations when the oyster farmers go MIA. So uh, some legislation probably coming up to tweak this program. Uh, there's also been an expansion into uh, growing uh, finfish species, including uh, uh, different types of fish and also apparently eels, uh, but no uh, permits for that yet because the interest is still growing. So uh, for that, uh, becoming a topic at an unusual legislative meeting uh, by the sea, oysters are my pick this week. That sounds tasty. Do we know how much it costs to rent this land and cultivate oysters? Yeah, I know. Should we have like an extra hobby going on? I feel like I need to have sort of an experiential... Uh, Can we expense it? That's what we're asking. Yeah, I, I feel like I should because I was trying to and trying to explain this. I realized I don't really have a great understanding about how this works, but if I were to do it myself, I probably could give a better explainer on the next Domecast. I know an, in I know an industry that needs subsidi subsidized. <laughs> Maybe we should get into this. Yeah. At least part of a newspaper, the uh, upper corner of the sports page can be yours for a fee. All right. Can can oyster farming save newspapers? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. We'll look into it. All right. Uh, I am really torn, but I think I'm going to go with Andy's choice uh, of students. Uh, we had kind of a, an amazing number of walkouts this week, and uh, it was all over the news. So. Um, we'll see what kind of a political impact uh, those students make. And uh, so our headliner of the week this week is uh, students who participated in the walkouts. Uh, for Will Doran, Lauren Horsch, Andy Spay, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 